0: Great kids through third grade, you can head out through the double doors in the back. The rest of you grab your Bible. We will be in John chapter two this morning. John chapter two is where we'll be picking up. and there goes half the congregation. Um, John chapter two, we're going to be reading uh, the first 11 verses there, one verses one through 11. Um, As we read about wine. And all God's people said, all right, on the third day, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did it Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the reading of God's word. And all God's people said, praise be to the Lord. You know, it wasn't too long ago that it was, uh, it was... Well, probably in some places it's still like this, but, you know, the taboo about Christians drinking alcohol seems to have dropped off just a bit over, at least in my lifetime, and so we're a little bit more familiar with the wines that are out there now. Plus, we're Presbyterians. Uh, we don't hide it either, um, and so, you know, you, we, it's the places where we most often bump into each other at the grocery store for people of our church. So my question to you is, whose wine do you enjoy drinking? I actually came to this realization, Meredith and I went on a vacation a number of years ago to Charlottesville and and discovered there a number of significant wineries that were owned by celebrities. Donald Trump's winery is there. If you like it on the other end, you can also get Nancy Pelosi's winery, it's in California. (laughs) Dave Matthews also has a large vineyard in Charlottesville as well, Dreaming Tree Winery. So those of you that are children of... uh, uh, singer songwriter music from the 90s. There you go, Dave Matthews. Country singer Zach Brown. He has West Georgia connections. He's, uh, right? He showed up various times to, to sing and play around here. He has a whole wine product, line of wine products that bear his name. There's celebrity after celebrity that owns vineyards or has some sort of significant stake in large vineyards. Everyone from Cameron Diaz to David Beckham to John Bon Jovi to Joe Montana own wineries. But the one that makes me laugh the most, because I think everything he does is rather funny, is that Snoop Dogg owns a very significant wine company called 19 Crimes. You've probably, if you've been in the wine aisle, it's in every single grocery store in our community. It has a guy sitting behind a a jail cell in an old school striped uh, prisoner's outfit. So you drinking Snoop Dogg's wine? Anybody? Anybody going for that? Well, today we read that there is another varietal out there, and it's called Jesus' Wine. Now that is a um, that's a cheesy segue, is it not? <laughs> but it goes well with wine. So how well are you drinking Jesus' wine? The wine that Jesus provides is the wine of His blessing that brings joy. Now understand, just to make sure you don't lose it, I'm going to repeat this. I am connecting wine and joy, kids. All right. So when we say, say the words wine today, think joy. The wine that Jesus provides is the blessing that he gives us that leads to joy. And the Bible uses the imagery of wine many places as a symbol of his blessings that give us joy. For example, in Psalm, in the psalmist praises God, the Lord for giving wine that gladdens the hearts of man. He says that in Psalm 104. The faithful of God's people, when they experience God's blessing, it's often brought to them, through symbolized through the giving of wine. Melchizedek, when he blessed Abraham, gave him wine. God gave the Levites the best of the Israelite wine. When they went into the land of promised land, the Canaan land, they were there. It was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey, but also for a lot of grapes. And that was really exciting for everybody because that meant wine. Wine is the symbol of God's blessing that gives his people joy. So are you known for drinking Jesus' wine? In other words, are you known as a Christian who is known for your joy? I do wonder about our generation. You know, we have become a generation of Christians who are well familiar with the microbrewery IPAs and we sip bottles of Pinot. We don't look down on alcohol like previous generations, but are we a generation that is known for our joy in Jesus? I think we might be known more for our cynicism, our whininess, our complaining, our entitlement, but not our joy. I don't know about joy, but joy, joy is deadly serious business. In the Bible, it is actually commanded. It is the second fruit of the Spirit, mentioned after love. Psalm 32, 11 declares, rejoice in the Lord. It's an imperative, and be glad. Psalm 16, 11, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And John 15, Jesus declares this. He says, my joy, I have come so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You know, one of the issues that I think we have as Christians today is that we're not drinking enough. At least by that I mean you're not drinking of the good stuff. You might be drinking too much of the swill, but you're not drinking of the good stuff that Jesus provides. And my goal this morning is to get you to drink more, to drink more of the joy of Jesus, the good stuff that he provides. And again, I want you to think here this morning, every time I mention wine, I want you to think of joy. Joy. So let's walk through our passage, and here's the first thing I want you to see, is that there's a shortage without Jesus' wine. There's a shortage without Jesus' wine. Jesus has spent the previous days calling to himself, where we've been the last couple weeks, where we saw last week he's been calling to himself disciples, and, and now he is at a wedding. And most likely, this is a wedding of either a family member or maybe some sort of close friend, because Mary, his mother, seems to have a vested interest in how this party goes. Now, while uh, weddings today are certainly very expensive and rather big affairs, they are nothing compared to weddings back then. Weddings then were seven-day-long events. Seven days of feasting and drinking and dancing. It all sounds exhausting, but also lots of fun. And people would come from all over the region to uh, uh, someone's wedding. And in fact, usually the whole city or village would be invited to the wedding feast. And the wedding feast was the responsibility not of the bride's father but of the groom. And I, for one, would like to suggest that we go ahead and change back to that way so that I don't have to pay for some weddings I got coming up. But notice that the, this is not where the gospel writer draws our attention. Not to the big, huge celebration, not to the raucous dancing, but he draws our attention to the fact that the wine has run out. Disaster has struck. The open bar has been shut down. You can't have a party without the wine. I must say, I don't want to offend those of you that have had weddings without wine, but if you've been to a wedding without wine, all you can experience is the social awkwardness of those new families hanging out together. It's actually rather miserable. That's why God gave us wine for weddings. But notice that, here, that you can't have a wine, that We can't have a party without the wine, and you need to understand that this is not some social minor faux pas here. This is, a, this is not just some small catering blunder This is a much more significant matter. It's a matter of great shame upon the groom. It indicates that he lacks the resources to throw the party that he needs to throw, that he had not planned adequately. He would have actually been forever known in his town and his village as the guy who ran out of wine at his own wedding. This is even a matter of legal liability. There's evidence that shows in the ancient Near East that you could be sued for not providing wine for the whole week. And you could particularly be sued by the bride's father. In fact, your marriage could be annulled rather quickly if you ran out of wine. And here's the reason why. Because you had contracted with that father, he had given you a dowry, and you were meant to provide for his daughter. And if you don't provide enough wine for a whole week, it is a sign that you could not provide for his baby girl. And so he goes, "Uh uh-uh, we're taking this right back. All this because there is a shortage of wine. And so Jesus has to come and rescue the day. He has to come and rescue the party and make up for this shortage of wine. And here's what I'd like you to see. If you're going to drink deeply of the wine of Jesus that Jesus provides, you must first see this, that all other wines in life will run out except for his. All other wines in life will run out. You see the To appropriate, and I've said this almost every time I've preached on this text, to appropriate the language and the words of Jack Sparrow from the very beginning of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Why is the rum always gone? Why is the wine always gone? That is in the case, if you forgot, just to make sure, that means all other joys in this life will run out except for Jesus. Jesus. What we think will satisfy us, what we think will make us happy, what we are depending on for social status, for provision, whatever it is in life, it's gonna run out. Sex, if you're living for sex, if that's the joy, you're gonna get old and have to take Cialis. If you're married, if marriage is the thing that you're most looking for to fulfill you and to make you satisfied, let me guess, you're actually eventually gonna put so much pressure on your spouse, they're gonna be a disappointment to you. Or perhaps you think that you're gonna be the answer to the joy in their life. And let me tell you, you're gonna to come to an answer that that is incorrect rather rapidly. Approval, if you live for approval, if that is what satisfies you is you hear the voice of acceptance and approval of those around you, you'll eventually come to a place where winning the approval of one person means you have to get, let somebody else be mad at you. Work, if you work for the sense of significance in, all, in your job, uh, your work will take the best years of your life and then they'll drop you like a hot potato in your old age. Or one quick bad turn of the stock market for finances to disappear. And even religion. Some of you have turned to religion as your means of joy. You like the rules and the regulations. You like the way it makes your life clean and proper and right and good. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment. But Jesus uses the old purification jars of Old Testament law. And he is saying, I am bringing something better. Because these things that you're looking to to cleanse you, they won't give you what you want. You're going to have to take another bath tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. All what you're left with if you seek joy through rules and regulations and the religious rituals is you're left with the dirty water of religious rites, and that's it. All these things in life have diminishing returns. They will leave you needing another hit, another drink, another stroke of your ego. You see in the scriptures, wine is connected to the good life to joy, to the the evidence of abundance in your life. But in this life, the wine is always running out. There is never enough. There is never enough personal success or personal adequacy to satisfy our souls. Do you feel that gnawing inside? Do you just try to constantly press it down, that sense that, ah, I'm agitated in the soul? You see, we have a joy shortage in our lives. And so in that perhaps Perhaps in realizing that, though, realizing that we need something better that will quench your thirst and satisfy your soul, that is the first place we must begin. What have you looked to, and is it doing the job? There's a problem here. The groom appears to not have enough money to buy the amount of wine that is needed for his wedding. He's expended all of his resources to provide the amount of wine that's been there already. He doesn't have what it takes to make the pay- payment to provide more wine. And isn't that the problem for all of us? I mean, if you think about it this way, wouldn't you drink wine every night with dinner? If you had the money to just spend willy-nilly on wine, wouldn't that be great? I'll always be walking around with a bottle in your hand going, it's dinner time. If you have the 10 or 15 bucks to spend every single night. The things of this world, though, they say, spend all your money on me. But they don't satisfy You eventually run out of money, and they leave you tired, and broke, and disappointed. It's like our lives are the morning after a frat house party. All that's left is garbage, a hangover, a heaping pile of regrets, and that's what the Lord, the world gives you. So that's what life gives you. You spend all of your resources on it, and still it's not enough. And so you say, well, I tried this, and I bought that, and I got that over the air, but now I want Jesus. I want the wine that Jesus provides, but here's the problem, Jesus. I've messed up immensely. My life has been screwed up, and therefore, I can't afford your wine. I can't afford to have you in my life. If you're supposed to have joy and to be the one that I'm connected to, I can't come near you because of all the other ways I've already messed up, but I have good news for you this morning. The wine that Jesus provides has already been paid for. And that is the second thing I want you to see, the cost of Jesus' wine. We see this in verses 4 through 6. The key interaction in this whole story is the one between Mary and Jesus. Now, it is quite enigmatic. It is a bizarre interaction in some ways. Mary comes to Jesus with a problem. She says there's no more wine. And now Mary was not just giving Jesus a source of information. She was looking for Jesus clearly to solve the problem. But Jesus responds in a fairly odd way. First, he says in verse 4, woman. What does this have to do with me? And now really quick, I'm going to just deal with this really quickly. The way the word there that he uses is like saying ma'am. He is, he is distancing himself from his mother. This is kind of a, 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 an appropriate term. It's not like we use woman now where we go, woman? Like that's not what he's saying to his mama, right? No, he's saying ma'am, all right? So he's saying ma'am, but he is, he is putting distance between her and him, all right? And he's saying, what does this have to do with me? But then the strange and seemingly enigmatic way in which Jesus talks keeps going. He then says that the reason why this has nothing to do with them, he says, for my hour has not yet come. And, and this is the first time this phrase is used in the book of John, but it's one of those phrases that if you're able to look at the whole book and, and, and its totality, this is a phrase that will come up many times. You see, this hour that he refers to is not a chronological hour but it's a technical word used in the literature of the Gospel of John that refers specifically to the death of Jesus. Let me give you some examples of this in three different places. So they were seeking to arrest him, him being Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 13, 1. Jesus knew now that his hour had come. To depart out of this world. And in John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So here's the, understand the scene. There's no wine. Mary says, Jesus, I need you to do something to help. And Jesus essentially looks at her and says, it's not my day to die yet. That's rather a confusing answer. You might be asking yourself, where in the world is Jesus' head in the moment? Earth to Jesus, we're here at a party. Why are you thinking about your death? What's it period thinking about? Well, there's a number of scholars that have pointed out this that Jesus is doing what we all do at weddings. He's thinking about his own wedding. And you may be thinking, but Jesus didn't get married, he was single his whole life. But over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom. Matthew 22, Mark 2, Luke 9, John chapter 3, Jesus is referred there as the groom. And throughout the Old Testament, there is this motif of God being the bridegroom to his people. Yes, he uses the images of shepherd and sheep and king and citizens, but most often, the most intimate language that God uses is that his people are the bride and he is the groom. And you see the same writer of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, will write another book called Revelation. And in Revelation 19, he will tell us that the end of all things, that they, the world will end at a great wedding feast, the wedding feast to end all wedding feasts when God will wed his people, his bride, the church. So scholars think that Jesus is thinking about his own med- wedding, but he's not thinking like a, necessarily maybe like, you know, my, my daughters would think about a wedding who are all about the, the dresses. He's thinking like a guy thinks about a wedding, which is he's going, I wonder how much this costs. And that's exactly what he's thinking about. He's thinking about how much it's gonna cost for him to have that wedding one day. This is why Jesus is troubled, because it will cost him so much to marry his bride. What will it cost? What will it take for for him to, to give his bride the cup of joy, to drink the cup of joy in heaven with her for all of eternity? That will mean that Jesus will have to drink the cup of God's wrath first. See, the imagery of the cup is not just used for joy, it's also used for God's wrath. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, he cries out to the Father as he's going to the cross, and he says, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink the bitterness of your wrath. I long to avoid this. If there's any way for me to win my bride without drinking that, but the Father says no. No. And so he drank it to the dregs. You see, Jesus, is, in order for him to have a wedding one day in heaven, Revelation 19, he must bear the cost of his bride's sins. Now you go, why does Jesus have to die to make this wedding happen? Well, it's because it's, we see, we see the, the clue in the place where the miracle happens. What does Jesus use to create the new wine? Well, water, yes, but then where is the wine, water turned into wine? It's in the six stone jars, it says. And these jars were used for the Jewish purification rites. For centuries, the the people of God... Had cleansed themselves before entering the temple or before coming into public gatherings. This wasn't just a matter of good hygiene. It was a symbolic way of saying, God, I know I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. And as I come into your presence, I need to have my sins washed away. And the teaching of both the Old and the New Testament is this that you and I, that God's people, and that all the people of the earth, that we are unclean because of our sin in our idolatry. We, the story of the world is this, is that we were created to have joy and delight in our creator as our husband, as our groom. But what we have done from the first bite of the forbidden fruit is just the opposite. We have said, I will look to anything else to satisfy my longings but you. We've looked at the lover of our soul and we've said, we don't want you. We want something else. And we've run after lover, after lover, after lover, so that we become become sordid and dirty like Gomer in the book of Hosea. So the image of what must Jesus do for his bride, in order to bring her into the wedding feast, he must cleanse her and purify her. That's the stone jars. That's the stone jars. But do you see what is happening? This wedding has now become a living parable. At his last supper, Jesus will take a cup of wine and he will say, this cup is a cup of my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, the only way you will be cleansed is not through water, it will be by my blood. That my blood will be poured out so that you may be washed clean so that my bride that deserves to have the wrath of God poured out upon her and her sinfulness and the fact that she's run after lover after lover instead of running after me for her satisfaction, but I will wash her by my blood. That's why it says this in the most beautiful image in Ephesians chapter 5. It says this, speaking about husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and what did he do? He gave himself up for her so that he might do what? Sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might then do what? Present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. This is your future. This is what he's turning us into. Something beautiful to behold. And therefore, here's what this means for us. To drink the joy that Jesus provides, you don't pay the cost he paid it for us. He made all the preparations for the wine and for the feast and he made a way for you to come into it and that's why it says in Isaiah chapter fifty-one, verse one, 55 verse 1, come, come to him. Come buy wine, but without money and without cost to you. So the joys of this world, they're dispensed in drops and ounces, but Jesus the one who does the buying. And isn't it great when someone else buys the wine? You might as well order more because you're not paying. You see, I want you to see here because Jesus is the one buying, that there's the lavishness of his wine as well. This is the third thing I want you to see in verses six through ten. A couple things stick out in the description of this wine that Jesus makes. There's two things. One is just the sheer amount. Look at verse six, it's comical. Now there's six stone jars there. the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. All right, let me do some conversions for you, okay? There are 30 gallons in each jar. There's six jars. So that's 180 gallons of wine. One gallon is up to five bottles of wine. So this is about 900 bottles of wine. For those of you that are beer drinkers instead of wine drinkers, this is like showing up to a party with 10 kegs. All right, you like that? Is that a helpful equation for you? There's an old commentator, English commentator named William Barclay, who was so startled by these numbers that he actually says that these numbers should not be taken literally. He says no wedding party on earth could one drink 180 gallons of wine, but I think the amount is literal, because what is more, what is Jesus is trying to intentionally tell us that the joy that He provides is in abundance he doesn't dole it out in ounces and in small glasses here's the point the joy that he provides never runs out it's eternal you see the joy that is found in jesus means that no matter what every in everything else in life all the other joys in life that when something wrong happens those joys run out that in the midst of suffering they go away But Jesus is the one thing that doesn't matter if your family is taken away, if your wealth is taken away, if your status and your significance is taken away, you have him, you have joy. And he can never be taken away. And when you think about the fact that his cleansing and his washing and the wine that's represented that gives you joy, it comes from his blood. What do we sing in the old hymn? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners can plunge beneath that and have all their sins washed away. And that is a spring that never ends. And second, I want you to notice the quality of the wine as well. It's not just abundant, it's also the best. The master of the feast that this, uh, is marvels that this wine is so good. He said, what we see here is that Jesus' wine is no nat, natty light. It's not two buck chuck, people. Wine in the Bible is the expression of the good life. Well, if wine is an expression of the good life, Jesus makes it clear that he is coming to provide an abundantly good life. John 10.10, he says, this is why I came. I came so that you may have joy, life, and life abundant. Jesus comes to turn water into wine, and a party that has come to a screeching halt gets hopping again, and so I ask you this, has your life run dry? He provides an eternal well of joy. Has the party of your life kind of come to a screeching halt? He can get the music started again. And here's why you can have joy even now. Because even now, you and I, even while we live in this world in which the things that provide us even momentary joys, these kind of temporal things, they come, they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. Even in the midst of sorrows and sufferings, you can have joy because Jesus has guaranteed the end of our story. So many of us think about the Christian life as something we got to grit out and just get through, and then at the end we go and we play a harp in heaven. But what is the image of what heaven is at the end of all things? This is Old Testament stuff here. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 through 8, it says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Verse 8, and He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Jeremiah thirty-one eleven through 13, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and he has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young with flock and the herd. Their life shall be a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and will give them gladness for sorrow that's where you're going what lies ahead of you what lies ahead of you in the midst of this life at the end of all things is children at the dance floor and old men shaking a leg it is not some dower thing where you play an instrument or maybe you do play an instrument you you my wife and I were saying this this week if we you know I we, we think of Dowager Countess from Pride and Prejudice who goes if I had ever learned how to play the piano I would have been quite proficient and that's how Meredith and I think of ourselves if we'd ever learned but in heaven one day we will be quite proficient at playing the piano and we'll play man I've always wanted to play at a piano bar and wouldn't that be awesome that's what heaven's going to be kind of like You can come to my section. We'll play the good stuff. And therefore, here's what this means. It means that in the midst of whatever suffering and difficulty and lack that you have in this world, if you have Jesus, then you know where your future goes. And therefore, here's the thing. Christians don't party and drink in order to try to distract them from life's difficulties or to try to satisfy their souls because no amount of alcohol or partying can do that. Nope. Nope. Christians gather at tables in their homes, and they gather together at breweries and at wineries, and they get together to dance as a way of practicing their future occupation. It's a way of looking and sticking your eyes in the fa- your fingers in the face of the world and saying, this is where I'm going. That right now I'm on mission, and I'm fighting in the Lord's army, but one day the battle will be won, and I will enter into his party for all of history. That's where you're going. In all this, what is the gospel writing trying to communicate to us though about Jesus? In verse 11, we see this: "This the first of his signs, and manifested his glory." This, he's saying, and all these things that John's going to talk about for many, many number of weeks. there's like seven key signs over the next many chapters as we look at it, John. but these signs, what John wants us to know is who the real Jesus is. And so who is the real Jesus? What, is this, what, what aspect of his glory is manifested here? What this passage is saying is that it's the glory of Jesus is experienced and felt and known and witnessed as he turns water into wine as he starts the party back up. Look at him. The miracle is a sign that tells us he is the source of all joy. All joy. And the glory that we experience could be summed up like this. He is the true life of the party. He is the true life of the party. Look at the beauty of his character, that when he arrives, healing comes, and the water is turned into wine, and there is joy and shame is done away with. Look at the beauty of who he is. I was watching my wife Meredith at a party we hosted recently, and people were having such a good time, and people were laughing and dancing and having great conversations in all corners of our house. And at one point during the party, I took this video of Meredith because she had somehow uh, figured out how to get a bunch of uh, grown adults to, to do Just Dance with her. We're dancing in our living room. You know the, the video game Just Dance? It's kind of like uh, uh, you, know, you, you mimic what they're doing on the screen. And the people were dancing and laughing. And I tried to take this video of her, and I, just, I wanted to send it to her parents. But then I erased it because I couldn't quite capture what I was truly seeing. What did I see? What I wanted to tell them and seeing that picture, that, that, that video, was to communicate how much delight I had for her. And in a sense, what I wanted to say was this look at how beautiful she is. Look at the world she creates around her. When she comes in the room, people dance. That is stunning. And not to make much of my wife, but now I'm going to connect it that's what Jesus does. That when he comes into your life, he takes those who, you see what it says, those who are in sorrow and mourning and makes them dance. So the last point I want to make this morning is an invitation. An invitation for you to taste the wine of Jesus. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And what's the last line? And his disciples believed in him. The point that John has for us is always the application could be this. Hey, trust him, believe him, put your hope and your joy in him. What keeps you from believing that Jesus, that is really your joy, that Jesus really can be your satisfaction, that he provides for you abundantly? What keeps you from believing that? Now, really quickly, some of you don't believe that Jesus is the joy that he promises to be because you're still looking to things of this world to satisfy you. You fail to have an abundant life and joy in Jesus because you're drinking too much of this world. And perhaps one of the things you're drinking too much of in this world is actual drink. But what I mean is this. You're drinking deeply from the swill of this world. You're thinking that these things will satisfy. You're still looking at sex and work and children and money and vacations and time alone and partying and personal achievement as your means for joy. And so many of you have been drinking the cheap, crappy, uh, two-buck chuck wine of this life when Jesus is offering you joy and security and significance and satisfaction. And so here, here, you've been drinking white Zen and he's offering you crystal. So here's my challenge to you. Would you take an account... What is it that you think is going to make you happy and to satisfy you in this life? And let me ask you this Is it working? Is it doing for you what you hoped it would do? There's another group I would like to challenge, though, this morning regarding your belief in Jesus, and that is those of you who profess faith in Him. As Christians, we tend to think of belief as professing a particular set of propositions. He is born of the Virgin Mary. He died. He rose again. He ascended. He does miracles. la di da da We believe these. And if that is all that is being about being a Christian, tipping the hat to doctrinal beliefs and theological propositions, that is all that's caught up in your belief, then no wonder we are not a people who are known for joy. Think about wine. How do you experience wine? When when Meredith first found me on the side of the road, destitute and uncultured, I knew nothing about wine, and Meredith knew she was a wine sommelier, and she would send me for some reason, I would be at the grocery store, and she's like, pick up some wine. Well, you know how I would pick up wine? Probably like you pick up wine. I'd look at the bottles and go, oh, this label looks cool. Okay, I'll buy that one. Now, by the way, I learned that that is not a good system, apparently. How do you know what is good wine? There are so many people who who say they're Christians, they believe in God, and they say, Jesus died for my sins, but they've never been intimately connected to Jesus. All they've ever experienced of him is the label. And Jesus says, my invitation to you is to come and drink. How do you know what is good wine? You have to put it in your mouth, and you have to swirl it around, and you have to savor it, and you have to taste it. That's why the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. To become a Christian who has joy means moving beyond merely labels about Jesus and experiencing the love and affection of Jesus for you as his beautified bride. Now, guys and gals, guys, this may be a little bit harder for you to connect to, but this is what Jesus thinks of you or the story of one young man who assumed he was saved, he knew about Jesus dying for his sins, he knew all the, the right truths, but he said this, what changed his life from a joyless Christianity to a joyful one was this, is he said, hey, finally I realized that all this stuff about Jesus' death and resurrection, I used to think that Jesus did those things because he just had to. That's, he just had to. Not because he liked me or because he loved me, but then I realized he did those things because he had set his affection on me. And he had declared me beautiful in his sight and something likable and something lovely. Do you know that today? He he didn't have to die for you and just go, like he did it begrudgingly like. He joyfully endured the cross so that he may have you. Jesus covers the covers us with his righteousness and he, all our imperfections will melt away and he accepts us because he has, not because it's his job, but because he wants to. Do you know that? I'll close with this last story. To hopefully, because I mean, I, I can tell you, like, hey, go try to experience the love and affection of God, but maybe we, if you illustrate it from a picture There was a show a couple years ago, I had to stop watching it because it was too emotional. My days are too emotional, and so I didn't want my evenings to be that way either. But it's a show, This Is Us. And there's a couple, and they're raising their children born on the same day. There's two boys, one girl. The little girl struggles her whole life with being overweight. But throughout the show, what you realize is that her father is absolutely taken with her his daughter, and so he's constantly telling her how beautiful she is and how talented she is and how wonderful she is, and she just lavishes her with praise. But when she's a teenager, she finally looks at her dad and she goes, stop telling me I'm beautiful. Stop telling me that. You're so intent on telling me that and so intense about it all the time that actually all I hear is you saying you are so fat and ugly that I have to to tell you over and over again in order to cover it up. So, I'm insulted, Dad. You're trying too hard. You protest too much, Dad. Telling me over and over again how beautiful I am only confirms to me the fact that the opposite is true. Well, this girl was a fantastic singer, and she had to make an audition tape at one point to get into a musical stool. And so, at some point, but she, she didn't want to be taped. And she's struggling with this idea, but one day her father sneaks up outside her room and he has one of those old school camcorders, kids, it was not our phones. It was these big, huge things he carried around. And and he films her playing the guitar and singing while she sits on her, her bed, and it's just beautiful. But what he doesn't recognize is that behind his daughter is a mirror. So that he isn't just filming her, he's also filming himself looking at her. And when she discovers what he has done by filming her without telling her, Without her knowing it, she is furious with her father. But when she is all alone, she takes that tape and she pops it in and watches it. And what she sees is not only herself singing, but she sees the way her father looks at her. Now, he isn't saying any words, but she sees the delight and the affection on his face. And what him saying to her a thousand times, I love you and you're beautiful, could not express... The look upon his face said it all. That he really did love her. That he really did believe she was beautiful. And she would go to, She went to her dad. She said, I know I told you not to tell me I'm beautiful anymore. But she says, please don't ever stop. Please don't ever stop. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. And every day you can wake up to that reality. Your groom cupping you in the face and saying... You are mine. I am yours, and you are my beloved. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I honestly believe sometimes that I am like that little girl. I don't want to hear my counselor say, Do you understand how good you are in his sight? There's something almost that makes me angry about it, that I struggle to come to the realization of it. So when I think about the things that we need to have pressed upon our soul, spirit of the living God, would we turn away from all the wine of this world because we hear the voice of our beloved and we believe him? We believe him when he says that we are the apple of his eye. We believe him when he says that we are his beloved. We believe him when he sings over us. So Spirit of the living God, what has remained for so many of us, just this, that God's love is simply just another doctrinal thing that we ascribe to. Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on us to make the penny drop such that our hearts believe it and that we begin to sing and to dance. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.